Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to address a really important issue. It's known as hidden hunger. Around 2 billion people are afflicted by micronutrient or vitamin and mineral deficiencies. And this hidden hunger actually increases risks of susceptibility to infectious diseases. Um, it can reduce cognitive function, so brain function, lead to blindness, and leads to an estimated 1 million premature deaths each year. And so I, I came across a paper on this topic that was published recently in Nature Plants. And so I reached out to the lead author of the paper um, to tell us a little bit more about the study where she looked at, along with her team, at these links between global plant diversity and um, this issue of micronutrient deficiencies. So let me introduce you to our guest. Her name is um, Aoife Cantwell-Jones. She's a PhD student researcher at Imperial College London and is currently researching how bumblebees interact with plants and the mechanisms underpinning them and how they could potentially um, be jeopardized by climate change. Um, before her PhD studies, um, Aoife had the opportunity to study her master's degree, um, working alongside researchers at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in London, where she studied edible plant diversity and its potential for human nutrition. And it's really that work that we'll be focusing on um, primarily today. Uh, throughout her academic journey, Aoife has committed to sharing the story of her research and has published four manuscripts and written blog posts about her work. And I'm really um, happy to have you on the show today, Aoife. It's so great to meet you. Yeah, I'm very excited. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, first, so this is this is exciting. This is a great paper, you know, growing out of your master's research. I noted in the paper, I just want to read one other line from it. You say, we predict the B vitamin profiles of more than 6,400 edible plants that lack nutritional data and identify over a thousand species as being promising key sources of B vitamins. So why why is why is this an important topic? Why why do we care about which plants are able to produce these micronutrients? Well, I guess if we look at sort of the current food system today, it's both amazing in that it provides us with an abundance of readily available and cheap food, but it also kind of contributes a lot of problems. So on the one hand, we have lots of health problems in our society today, like rising cases of um, non-communicable diseases. So these are preventable diseases like diabetes. Um, but as you said in the introduction, there are still a huge number of people who suffer from micronutrient deficiencies. Um, the most common ones being things like iron, vitamin A and folate. So the, we have all these health problems associated with our food system. And then aside from this, we also have problems linked to sort of climate change, biodiversity loss, and food is really a key contributor to both of those, but is also suffering from those effects. So for example, what I mean by this is, if we think about climate change, it's likely that many crops will struggle to grow under future climate change conditions, um, meaning that we might not have as great, I don't know, like availability of those in the future. So we need to start thinking about different options that may be better suited to the novel climates that we might have that might be able to replace those nutrition. Another sort of interesting aside from this is that actually, if we look globally, and um, I know you've discussed this on your podcast before with um, Colin Curie, um, we see that diets are sort of homogenizing. Um, so 
we seem to be eating sort of more similar things across the globe, um, which puts a lot of um, sort of demand on growing increasing amounts of monocultures, um, which again sort of reduces our resiliency in the face of like climate change. Um, so really, it's great to be able to know a bit more about the sort of the rest of the, the diversity of plants that we could be eating. So I think historically, we've only really cultivated and eaten between 150 and 200 plants. And yet scientists at um, the Royal Botanical Gardens Q have already documented over 7000 plant species that we eat. So there's an incredible diversity of plants that we could be eating and that could provide us with sort of future resources um, in the face of challenges. Um, but there's just very little data on most of them. It's like a, it's a really key challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me how little we do know about the, the potential for, for different foods, especially at a time where, as you mentioned, many of these monocultures are facing, you know, challenges due to changing climatic conditions, spread of disease um, and pest pathogens that have genetically identical crops. You're really just setting yourself up for a crisis moment um, where those crops will eventually fail um, due to their lack of resiliency. Um, So we have that on one hand, but I, I think, you know, what really drew my attention with this paper is thinking about the health implications of this for people and how yeah, sure. can we better, how can we better reach and meet those needs for, you know, micronutrient de- delivery through these different crops. Um, why don't we start by just talking a little bit about how plant diversity and sustainability in our food systems are intermingled. Um, so I think um, edible plant diversity, so actually by this I mean not just crops that we eat, but also things like crop wild, relati- wild relatives. So these tend to be quite like closely related to crops, but maybe we don't actually produce them as much. Um, but also plants we sort of uh, wild forage. And I think there's quite a lot of data that a lot of these species are actually super nutritious, but maybe people aren't so aware of them. Maybe they're seen as sort of poor foods. Maybe there aren't sort of like value change existing value chains existing for them. But just as an example, so I think in Brazil, there's a, a plant that's native there called Camu Camu, and it has 40 times the vitamin C content of an orange. Um, and it's just it's amazing that there's this abundance of like nutritious plants out there that we just don't really know enough about and I think there are I in the literature that I've read anyway there are so many examples of plants like this where they're just incredibly nutritious we just don't really know um that they exist or that they're a resource for us well that certainly would be like a superfood right 40 times the level of vitamin c I guess you know when we do identify these I, I also at the same time worry about impacts on local cultivation. I mean, we've seen this with acai, where if this was a traditional food used by Amazonian people um, as a as a primary source of food, but then a lot of export, which can be good for local economies, but there's also, there's always two sides to the coin, right? Um, so the challenge then becomes if we want to develop these, these, these plants as crops for international trade, we have to do it in a very um, intentional and thoughtful way. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. Like, I think there are quite a few examples where maybe there's been so much demand from kind of Western consumers that it's been quite, uh, there's led to quite an unsustainable growth in that industry. So um, you mentioned acai, but if we also think about quinoa, that used Mm -hmm. to be just a sort of like, 
local crop in South America, and now it's globally consumed. Um, coconuts as well, that's another one. And so we definitely need to be more mindful about how we're actually approaching these foods and making sure that we're using them sustainably, and also that the benefits get shared with maybe the local communities who used to sort of produce them. Um, I think there have been many examples of history of sort of rich people coming in and um, maybe learning from indigenous communities about a certain food and then not sharing the benefits back with them. So that's another important part of it. Um, but I think there are organizations that um, are trying to do this in a more sustainable way. So for example, um, there's an organization called um, Bioversity International and they collaborate with the International Center for Tropical Agriculture. And I know they are trying to create sort of more local value chains for foods like um, chaya, which is also called Mayan spinach, and it's quite um, a nutritious and hardy food, um, but also other crops like um, tepary bean, um, that again, sort of like locally in the local communities, they're trying to sort of foster more supply and demand to try to more sustainably increase the, the nutritious foods that's available there. Oh, these are great examples. Yeah, there's there's a lot that that can be done if we do it, like you said, in a sustainable and kind of equitable way. Well, yeah. I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the science. So one of the questions I've had is, you know, are there ways to really mine the evolutionary history of plants in our search for for species that might have the potential to really meet some of these micronutrient needs? Like, is that possible? Or do you have examples of how that how that might work? Well, that's what we try to do in our paper. So mm -hmm. um, I think the sort of the concept behind this is that um, the more sort of closely related you are to something, the more similar your genes should be, and therefore the more similar the expression of those genes should be. So just as a very basic example, um, I am more genetically and sort of phenotypically or sort of like externally similar to my sister than I would be to my second cousin. And then as a sort of more planty example, um, like a raspberry and a blackberry that both belong to the rubus genus, um, you would expect them to be sort of more nutritionally similar um, than maybe a blackberry and a pea. And so if we extrapolate this across plants, it might be possible to use information about sort of um, maybe like crops or sort of nutritionally known plants and then extrapolate their nutritional values um, across nutritionally unknown plants. So this might be your crop wild relatives or your wild forest plants. So that was the idea that we had behind our paper. And the sort of first test that we did for this was we looked at whether um, the B vitamins, which we focused on, um, are genetically or evolutionary clustered in nutritionally known species. So those were primarily crop species. Um, and we found that, so we tested um, six B vitamins for this to see whether they were sort of evolutionary clustered. And we found that for thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, pantothenic acid, and folate, that they were. So we thought that there could be um, potential to extrapolate their values across greater edible plant diversity. That's great. So, okay. So you can use, you can use these tools to see, yeah, to identify other potentially edible sources. I guess one question then is you could also, you know, in some cases, even plants that might have nutrients that are useful to us, those may also have molecules that are also poisonous to us. So take, for example, 
um, cassava, Manahatas culinta. It's, you know, poisonous tuber that feeds the majority of people in the tropics, right? So um, would the same principle apply? Would you expect to see some of those similar molecules? I mean, in, in those types of plants as well, like wild relatives of, of that? I mean, it, it could definitely be possible. And um, this was actually one of the caveats that we put in our paper because um, I kind of like the two related points to that. One is how you process food is incredibly important. And that was not something that we took into account in our study. So when we did the predictions, it was based on the fresh edible portion of the plant. Um, and the processing is so important because otherwise you could be eating something poisonous and it's not something that I would obviously recommend. Um, so then the other part of that is that, of course, many plants might contain sort of like anti-nutrients, so like phytates, which again reduce the absorption of um, many nutrients. So like just an easy example is um, you shouldn't really have iron with caffeine because caffeine reduces your absorption of iron and so i'm sure that's the case across many plants and it could be possible to also use sort of genetic relatedness to identify where that would be the case but that wasn't something that we did that's great well a lot of the work that i've heard about in crop wild relatives has been primarily focused on kind of seed banking and trying to bank back genetic information do you think we could be doing more with our crop wild relative studies like how how could we take them the next step forward for nutrition research? Yeah, so I think there has been um, great progress in sort of trying to conserve crop wild relatives and other edible plants. Um, but in our study, that was one of the things that we looked at. We looked at sort of what proportion of plants, um, especially the plants that we identified as potential sources of B vitamins, are conserved um, in seed banks. Um, and we found that actually um, for those source species, it wasn't too bad. It was only 6% of them that weren't. Um, but this is also a bit superficial when we say this, because of course, it's not just the diversity that you want at the species level. It's also really important the diversity that you get sort of within species. So you can get many different varieties of crops. And so if we say that 6% of source species are not even sort of like covered, just imagine all the different varieties that exist within species that are also missing. And we found this percentage to be higher um, when we were looking at species that weren't sort of key sources of micronutrients as well. So if we looked at sort of like all edible plant diversity. Um, the other thing that we also looked at in the paper that I think was maybe a bit more surprising was um, how many... Um, was how many, actually, sorry, I realized I just misspoke. It was actually a quarter of the species, not 6% of the species that were not conserved in seed banks. So uh, much higher than 6%. Um, but then when we also looked at how many species were sort of threatened in the wild, we found that we didn't even know if they were threatened or not for a third of those species. So again, that's another area that we could really um, improve our knowledge on is just finding out um, sort of how threatened are species in their natural habitats. Um, and it was for this that we found that 6% of the source species are either threatened or potentially threatened or extinct in the wild. So it's not like a ridiculously high number, but it's still like non-negligible. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, what are some of the, what are some of the things that threaten these species in the wild? I mean, do we know, do you know, do we know what the threats are? Um, so I guess there are sort of um, ones that are, 
well to me that are sort of more obvious because I kind of study these things more but you know like things like deforestation and land use change these threaten a lot of um, species um, then again also climate change is also kind of a key threater um, but then there's some things that are sometimes a bit more subtle and not necessarily so obvious so for example like loss of indigenous knowledge loss of languages um, quite often these species, we might only know about them when they're passed through like oral traditions. And if these um, cultures are being lost, then it could be that many of these species we will never find out about and um, their uses and how to process them may also be lost. So I think that's also another um, thing that we need to be more aware of. And I think it's not necessarily spoken enough in the media. We hear a lot about climate change, but we don't necessarily hear as much about extinction of languages. No, I 100% agree. I mean, I think we're, I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head now, but I know that language loss is a major, major issue right now. Um, because with each language, I mean, you're losing libraries of knowledge around the wild plants that are in, you know, people's environments and how they process, you know, it's amazing how many, to me, at least it's amazing how many poisonous plants people across the world can consume because over time, they've figured out, you know, well, I have to grate the roots of this thing and then I let it dry in the sun and then that gets rid of all the toxicity or I have to boil it three times yeah. and throw out the water or I need to, you know, freeze it and stomp it and leave it in, you know, in the ground and the ice and then it, then I can process it. I mean, it's, it's incredible the ways that, that people have figured out how to really tap into those nutritional resources while evading some of those more toxic constituents. And, um, yeah, it makes me, I mean, your paper makes me think more about these other micronutrient um, angles that I think haven't really been thoroughly examined in the literature yet. I, you know, it's, it's, this is, we think a lot about caloric intake, you know, yeah. but, but these other areas are really important to overall health. Yeah, I think like with this paper, we're really just scratching the surface um, because Ultimately, we actually don't know a lot of the um, metabolic compounds that are in plants. So by this, I just mean sort of like chemicals um, that maybe play a role in the plant chemistry, but maybe it might also be sort of beneficial to humans. I think there's just like a whole, um, I don't know, just, I'm not really sure what the right noun is, but there's like a, an amazing amount that we just don't actually know, like that what their roles might be for humans, like how they might benefit us, how they might be used in other things. And um, so we're, we're just characterizing B vitamins, but I mean, there's there's all the rest of the vitamins and then there's all of this other stuff that we just have no idea about that could be useful. Um, and it's, it's quite tragic that we're just losing so much of that knowledge and also just losing plant species in general without ever finding out how they could be used. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think this is an area more and more researchers are starting to pay attention to. Um, there's an exciting project. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, it's, it's kind of a relatively new project that's funded through the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's called the Periodic Table of Food Initiative, PTFI. And they have this really ambitious goal um, to really characterize, like through metabolomics, characterize chemically, um, you know, a thousand foods, but they're not, you know, not just the raw ingredient, but what is the chemical makeup? What's the health value of a baked potato versus, you know, a fried potato or something, you know, this kind okay. of level of thing and not just, you know, restricted obviously to these very common crops, but also many of these other, I would say 
common within local areas, like regional, regionally important crops as well. And I just, I'm really excited to see where this study goes, because I think we're going to learn a lot about some of these different aspects, but it's incredibly complex. I mean, as you know, plants contain thousands of metabolites that are playing many different roles for the plants themselves. And sometimes humans figure out how to tap into that and and use it for our nutrition. Yeah. Well, I I do want to talk a little bit about your next phase of work, because this really is a a tie-in to, you know, understanding and studying plant secondary metabolites, micronutrients, other secondary metabolites that, that plants create and interactions with other organisms. So we've been talking about human plant interactions, but I know now you are doing some really fun um, field research. Um, where, where are you doing this work? You're studying bees in the wild. Where, where are you off studying these, these bees? Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty incredible. So, um, for my PhD, I have somehow been so lucky in that I get to go to Arctic Sweden and um, we do field work in this national park um, and there's a mountain called Mount Nolia and basically um, about four times a week we sort of hike up the mountain, we catch bees, we see which um, the flowers that they're visiting and we try and like record lots of information about their interactions and try to better understand the mechanisms there but it is like it's such an amazing thing that I can do field work there, it's absolutely stunning. That's I mean, when I think of Arctic, I don't think bees. I'm thinking ice and polar bears. <laughs> so, but maybe that's a bit. <laughs> so there are bees there. There are bees. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to be honest, I think I wouldn't believe it unless I was there myself. But um, but something that like maybe I should caveat it is I'm only 200 kilometers into the Arctic Circle, so it's not like okay. you know your proper. Um, I don't know, like really harsh, um, but at the same time, so we, I'm normally out there between sort of like May and August. And when mm-hmm. we first arrive in May, um, that's when it's, it's completely snow covered. So you're hiking up and you're falling constantly into snow and um, I get stuck and then people have to dug me out, dig me out and it's really <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> but it's actually something that's quite incredible is you get willows and they have um, sort of catkins and even when it's completely snow covered, their catkins are sticking up through the snow and wow. start flowering and then you just hear like a sort of drone and the bee flies over the landscape and just lands on um, one of the catkins and pollinates it. And you're just like, how is life surviving when I am not? But anyway, it finds a way. That's that's going to be like such an incredible s- signal of hope, you know, with the icy landscape and this little, you know, well, it's not a little plant, well, it was a big tree, but like poking, you know, poking through the snow and here comes the bee. That's exciting. So are you, what what are your hopes for this study? Are you, are you looking at I mean, are, is this bee population healthy? I know that bees across the globe, especially honeybees and bees in agriculture have been, you know, hit with a number of setbacks and disease kind of outbreaks. Is, is, has this affected the bees in the Arctic? This is something that we're trying to find out because the Arctic is changing really rapidly. Like it's warming at twice the global mean. Um, and so this study started in 2018 and I joined in, um, 2020 slash 2021 and we're hoping for it to be a really long-term monitoring system to be able to see how the bumblebee population is surviving there and how the changing climate is affecting their interactions with plants. Um, Something that's kind of a more positive sign is um, this study site actually has some historical relevance and was visited in the 1970s 
by some other researchers. And we've been able to compare um, the data from their manuscripts to our data. And it looks like most of the bee species are still, you know, very healthy and um, doing fine. I think there was only one species that we found. Um, it's called Bombus hyperboreus. I don't think it has a common name, but this one is already listed as threatened by IUCN and we've seen a really dramatic decrease in that species. So I would say it's mostly, the system is mostly really thriving, but there are some winners and losers within that system. Wow. These kinds of studies are so important to um, really get a handle on what's happening. I mean, I think it's it, climate change is such an abstract topic to I think many. And so when you really start putting real experiences behind it, that can really help to tell the story um, of what's happening. Yeah. And I think for this site as well, it's, it's very visible as well, because they have um, photographs from the 1970s when those researchers were there and um, people were able to sort of take a photograph in the exact same position and just look at how the tree line has shifted. And it has like, it's noticeable in the photos, just the sort of the increase up the mountain of where the tree line has moved because of the warming and because the conditions are becoming more favorable higher up for them. So I think, I mean, this is happening globally in many systems, but it's just when you see it, it makes it really a lot more tangible. Yeah. I know there have been some really interesting studies that have happened also in the Himalayas that have found similar findings looking at like, especially working with local communities and kind of monitoring where the useful plants are that they use for either grazing for their animals or collecting for medicines or for food. And I can't remember who it is that told me this, but they said in a, in a, in a presentation once, you know, after a while you run out of mountain, right? There's only so far you can go with, as, yeah, as, exactly. as the plants, yeah. as the plants keep going up after a while, there's no more mountain. There's no other spot to go to. And so um, it's, it's, it, this is a systemic expectation that, you know, for these species to adapt in a very fast pace, which we've never seen, you know, um, on earth. So it's, it's so important to study these, these things now. And also, also, you know, some of the questions that come to mind are how, how do these changes affect things like micronutrient content? How does it affect, um, you know, the levels of flavonoids or other kind of antioxidant, anti-inflammatory molecules also in our foods, because plants are responsive. That's a, these are products of their defense mechanisms. And so if those are, you know, if they're under change, you know, could there very well be a change in, um, in production of those molecules? Oh, I'm, I'm sure that there would be for many species, to be honest, because I mean, like, uh, micronutrient contents vary just in sort of like, um, I'm not really sure, like in sort of in space and time. So they vary maybe like across a season, they vary along like environmental gradients. And so of like, why wouldn't it be affected by sort of like different conditions? Um, and I think even not even down to the micronutrient, just the ability of um, crops to really um, sort of produce um, the word is like, I can't think of the right words, but I can give an example that explains it. Okay. So um, I know there was a study that looks at the effect of um, sort of future climate conditions on the ability of sweet potatoes to produce tubers. And so they tested um, around 2000 varieties of sweet potato, which I mean, who knew there were that many varieties of sweet potato? Um, and they found that the majority of them, their tuber size reduced quite significantly under the climate change conditions. Um, fortunately, there were around um, 130 varieties that actually maintained their tuber size um, under the climate change conditions. So um, edible plant diversity does have that 
you know, ability to provide us with sort of genes that we can hopefully cross into the common variety of sweet potato to provide us with resilience. Um, but I think it's incredibly likely that climate change will affect the way that plants are growing, their micronutrient contents, their macronutrient contents, and just the ability to sort of produce, to be productive. Such great points, such great points. Um, well, before we wrap up, I had some other more general questions. You're a, you're a young researcher at the beginning of your career. Number one is where do you, where do you see yourself going um, once you finish up your PhD? And do you have any advice? We have a lot of students, a lot of graduate students that listen to this show um, that are, you know, really interested in some of these aspects related to climate change, interested in crop resilience, interested in kind of discovery wild crop relatives, all these different areas. So uh, where do you see yourself going and what advice would you offer to others that are interested in entering this field? Um, I, for myself, it's, it's quite a tricky question. So I have about a year left of my PhD and um, I'm, I'm extremely excited by the idea of academia. So um, I'm quite tempted to try to go to a postdoc and um, probably continue looking at plant pollinate interactions. I just find them really fascinating and really cool. Um, and then as for advice for other young people, I think I, I just found that always for me, I chose something that I have enjoyed. So I think throughout um, my career so far, I've just always looked at something that sounds fun and something that I think I'll enjoy. Because I know that if I enjoy it, then I can really give it my all. And then I know that whenever I do do something, I always try to give it my all. And I feel that just so many opportunities just come out of things that you never expect. You just, you don't know that something's a good opportunity until you've done it and until something great has come out of it. And I think that you just have to really try and then see what happens, which is maybe not um, particularly great advice, but it has worked for me really well. So, yeah. It sounds like great advice to me. I think you should definitely do it if you love. <laughs> I mean, science is a journey. There are many highs, but many lows along the way. So you better love what you're doing. Yes. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your work with us and, you know, insights into your next adventures, um, hunting bees in the Arctic. Who would have known that was a thing? Um, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you again. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the Food Curious, recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And if you'd like us to help keeping the show going, you can do that by just heading over to mysterycontrol.com. We've got some awesome merchandise you can check out, some fun coffee cups and t-shirts and you know, totes, all kinds of goodies. And then you can also think about buying me a coffee. I need to be caffeinated to keep the show going. So you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash foodiepharma. And those donations go towards helping us cover our production costs. So thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.